How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word and uh, study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thankful for this opportunity to study the things that we're going through in Romans and how important it is for us to learn the foundation of our spiritual life and what we received at salvation and all that you have provided for us in Christ and all that you have given us in terms of the spiritual blessings and the riches that we have in Christ that we may learn to live on the basis of who we are and what we have in terms of our new identity, our new sonship, our uh, new position in Christ, our new identification with him, and to apply those things on a regular basis. Now, Father, as we wrap up our study this evening in Romans 5, making the transition into the spiritual life teaching of uh, Romans 6, help us to see how these uh, connect and fit together that God the Holy Spirit can use this to motivate us, challenge us to really press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. While you're turning in your Bibles to Romans 5, I wanted to read to you a prayer. This was a prayer that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, gave in his address to the nation in, on June the 6th of 1944. Just interesting sometimes to think about the prayers that were uh, articulated by different presidents, whether they were believers or not, whether their prayers got beyond the ceiling or not, we don't know. But at least they understood through their the things that they did and their forms that that it was important to give the example of a relationship with God and the importance of God, even if for some it was only a form, only only a lip service. Today we live in a world that that wants to act as if God doesn't exist, and belief in God makes you a little bit nuts. And if you believe that the Bible is true, you're a little bit crazy. Well, if that's true and just follow out those implications, that means just about everybody's significance in this nation prior to uh, 1940 was crazy. And that ought to tell us something about the people who think that they were crazy. I think psychologists call that projection, don't you? Something like that. So here is uh, President Roosevelt's prayer. Almighty God... Our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization. Isn't that interesting? Praying to preserve our religion when we have Supreme Court justices he appointed that worked very diligently to destroy it. Just couldn't help making editorial comments. 
and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, and steadfastness in their faith. He goes on to say, They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and by flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. He then went on to pray, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. With thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. And then he concluded saying, Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. So that is uh, it's interesting. We do have a civil religion, or this country always had a civil religion that was based on Christianity and a recognition that the Judeo-Christian heritage was the foundation of freedom, and indeed it is because the only nations in truly in this world that have ever be, had their societies and cultures elevated to this to a stature of understanding liberty and and freedom is those who have a judeo-christian heritage the modern nation of israel and most of western europe and a few other nations that were impacted uh, by Christianity are the only ones who understand true uh, true freedom. And that true freedom means that it, it must extend down to the individual and this emphasis on individual responsibility. And if you really truly believe in individual responsibility as the core of civilization, then how can you vote for a government that is always going to try to take care of every decision in your life? That is totally inconsistent. If people believe in individual responsibility, then you must drastically limit government because gover- whether it's government or whether it is some other uh, uh, structure, maybe it's corporate, maybe it's the work environment in, in the home, it may be uh, a spouse, may even be children today, that there's always someone who's not supposed to be in authority who is always waiting at the wings to take authority away from those who are no longer volitionally vigilant, volitionally vigilant to make sure that they uh, maintain their own individual responsibility. And once we start giving that up and letting other people make decisions for us and determine what is what is good and proper and say, well, you, that's not bad, that's not not, uh, it's really not bad for the government to limit how much sugar we can have in our, in our drinks or how large our drinks can be. Once we give that up, we, just, we, we might as well give everything up. We're, we're, we're abdicating our personal responsibility and liberty. Reminds me of a joke yesterday that democracy, democracy is, is a two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner. Liberty 
is a lamb who is well-armed and can defend itself. Okay, Romans chapter 5. This is a this passage that we're in fact as I was uh, driving over here tonight I was having a conversation with uh, Jim Myers who's in town and trying to get past his jet lag he got in day before yesterday from Kiev and he'll be uh, here in the states until somewhere around the 20th or so of August he will be here next week on both Tuesday and Thursday night so I just want to encourage you all to uh, make sure you come, that we have a decent attendance when we have a guest speaker, someone who is a quality, uh, qual- of the quality of, of Jim Myers. We had a, spent half the day together uh, yesterday and had a tremendous time talking about many different things and catching up. And um, as we were talking this evening coming over, he asked me what I was teaching tonight, and I said, well, we were going to be finishing up Romans chapter 5. And, and he just commented that this section is really, a, for, for some people, it's a difficult section. It's, it is not an easy section to go through, and part of that is because it's transitional. And as we've covered on Tuesday nights, with Acts being a transitional book, what I have found is that many people have trouble understanding transition and what what that means when something is in transition, even within a letter, moving from one uh, main topic to another and setting up certain connections, which is what uh, Paul is doing here as he moves from ju- the end of his discourse on justification, which is the forensic declaration of righteousness. And I just want to emphasize that because we're going to get back into this word group related to righteousness again uh, in, in, as we finish up this section tonight, but it is a little different form of the word for uh, it's not really justification or righteousness. It has more to do with the uh, action, the acts of righteousness, doing righteousness, as opposed to what we have in Romans 3 and 4, which is talking about the forensic declaration of righteousness that comes as a result of our salvation. And chapter 5 deals with the benefits of that declaration of our righteousness. The righteousness we have is not on the basis of who we are or what we've done ever. It wasn't that way in the Old Testament. It wasn't that way under with, with, uh, with Abraham. I mean, it's just so clear. If you don't understand that, just read, uh, read Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, and you get to 15, 6, and, and God makes a clear statement about, about Abraham that he was justified by his faith, not by his works, but by his faith. It is that trust in God that is the foundation for our, our justification. And so we have to understand that, that our works of righteousness, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, our works of righteousness, not our works of unrighteousness, but our works of righteousness, the things you're so proud of, those good works. And this is the same phrase that is popular or common in modern, uh, modern Judaism in terms of uh, deeds of tzedakah, good deeds, charitable deeds, deeds of righteousness, uh, that's the same phrase that, that Isaiah says right there in that verse. It says, all of our deeds of righteousness, all of our good works are as filthy rags. So there's nothing we can do or point to that says, that's why God 
justified me. That's why God saved me. That's why God thought it was worth having me uh, in heaven, uh, because we're all uh, leveled out as not being uh, worthy at all. And one of the just, one of the benefits of justification is that we have peace with God. And as I covered last uh, Sunday morning, we got into this with talking about uh, the peace of God that rules like an umpire in our life is not an internal subjective peace because this isn't how the Apostle Paul uses the term. There are a few rare times that it's used that way, but primarily the word peace, when it has a theological, spiritual life significance, it's not talking about your inner, having a relaxed mental attitude. That was just such a blinding flash of the obvious when I when I recognized that last week. Uh, we've always looked at passages like, and this is what I'm going to cover Sunday morning, that uh, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with your uh, with thanksgiving, let your request, request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds. And you say, ah. see right there, it says be anxious for nothing, and then at the end it's peace with God. That's, that's in that inner peace and tranquility. Yeah, but if you go back about two verses, you realize that that whole section is dealing with these two women who are having uh, personal problems, and they're, uh, they're at odds with each other. And so the context is dealing with the, the, as I pointed out on Sunday morning, because we have peace with God, Ephesians 2, we have peace with one another, and that reality, that truth needs to govern our human relationships so that we don't have uh, a, a bad testimony by having disharmonious relationships. Now, there's sometimes you can't avoid it. But as I pointed out when we studied Pursue Peace with All Men back in when we were studying in Hebrews chapter 12, when we've done all that we can that is right, there are many times there are others who are bitter, angry towards us. Uh, they are, uh, uh, have all manner of mental attitudes. We can't, mental attitudes, sins towards us. There's nothing we can do about that. You can't change other people. You can only change yourself. You can only make decisions about yourself. And so we need to recognize there's an external rule, an external guideline, which is uh, based on this principle that we have peace with God. And that's how Paul uses the term here. We have peace with God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it is an objective reality. And so then in the first part of this chapter, he explains that and relates this peace with God to uh, our uh, spiritual growth in facing uh, difficulty, adversity, tribulations, uh, verses 3 through 4. Uh, not only that, but we glory uh, in tribulations, knowing that tribulation or adversity produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God, that is the love from God, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that relates to the indwelling of the Spirit from the moment of salvation. And then verses 6 through 11, he comes back to focusing back by verse 11 on this theme of rejoicing in God, that we can rejoice because what? Because we have now received this reconciliation. Reconciliation is the counterpart to peace with God. So we rejoice and we can have joy 
and stability because we have this external objective peace with God. And then as a result of that, Paul draws a con- starts to draw a conclusion in verse 12 because he wants to make sure that his readers and that we understand that the foundation the foundational connection between the declaration of justification, the peace we have with God, and the shift that goes into what we call experiential or practical righteousness that is the production of our spiritual growth and spiritual life, which is what comes starts to enter into the language by the time we get into verse 21 when Paul concludes, so that his sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'll give you a little hint. What he means by righteousness there isn't going to be justification. And what he means by eternal life there is like what he has in Romans 6.23. He's moving us from the uh, positional reality of life without end to the sanctification truth of, of, of the quality of life, not just quantity, but the quality of life. And that term for eternal life is not just that we get to live forever, but it is a quality of life, as Jesus said in, in John 10.30, that I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life. That's phase one, eternal life, and to give life abundantly. That is the, the, the life that we talk about in terms of our spiritual life. So before we can talk about life, though, we have to talk about death. Because life and death are continuously contrasted in Scripture, we start in Genesis two seventeen, where we lay where God laid down the penalty for disobedience to Him. This was to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam specifically at this point, because when God made this statement, He had not yet created Eve, and He told Adam that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That was the command. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, and that phrase, in the day, is a phrase that means uh, instantly, at that time, not 930 years later when Adam died physically, but at that point in time, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, there's an interesting construction there in the Greek, that if you, I mean the Hebrew, that if you translated it literally, it would mean... uh, it would mean dying, you shall die. But that really doesn't make any sense in English. It's, it, it was an inappropriate way of trying to express the Greek phrase, I mean the Hebrew phrase there. And when, we, when I went through Genesis 2.17, the Genesis series, I went through all of the grammatical uses of this kind of construction in the, um, in the Hebrew in Genesis and this idea of translating it with a with a an English gerund plus a finite verb doesn't really make uh, sense. And in fact, the idiom in Hebrew is designed to say this is something that will that is emphatically, definitely going to happen. You will definitely die. At that moment, it is boldface with exclamation points, but since they didn't have punctuation, they did it through idiom and syntax. When you took a cow, uh, cow, cow stem, perfect tense verb, and added a, an infinitive construct to it, 
it what it does is it uh, emphasizes the and intensifies the reality of the statement. And you have a lot of different statements uh, like that uh, throughout Scripture. I think you even have statements like, eating you will eat. Now, if you just get away from all the theological connotations that you've heard on dying you will die, and you say, what does it mean, eating you will eat? That really doesn't mean anything in English. It, 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 it doesn't communicate anything. Uh, and that's just a bad way of expressing expressing the idiom. But the point that I want to make here, and we want to hit it very clearly as we go through this the, the, the class, is that the death that comes on the human race came at the instant of Adam's decision to eat of that fruit, and it was a uh, a qualitative death that separated the creature from his creator so that uh, he could not have a relationship with that creator. He was still physically alive, but a separation had occurred so that he no longer had a sor- source of life. It is sort of like, um, this is the best of illustrations, but it's like taking a fan and unplugging it from the wall. It's no longer plugged into the power source, but the blades will keep spinning for a while, and there will be the appearance of life, but there's no life there anymore. It's already dying. It's already, the death has occurred, and it's just winding down. All you're seeing is, is the result. So that's what happens is Adam is instantly separated from God, and it, as we see in our study in Romans, where the emphasis through the uh, uh, using the male gender in the nouns is showing that it is Adam's sin, not Eve's, that is the determinative one, because Adam was set up by God to be the federal head or the representative head of the of the human race. So that once Adam dies, then you get in a situation where you have this. Uh, you have the human race that is that has the appearance of life, but they're really dead. And this is why you get this corruption that leaks out and it impacts government, it impacts all the divine institutions, it impacts government, it impacts nations, it impacts families, it impacts marriage, because they're basically dead and corrupt on the inside. And as until unless they turn to the solution to be regenerated and made alive, all that is produced is just death. Now, some of it is more whitewashed than other uh, other aspects of the death, but everything has, is corrupted by that. And so the decision for the human race becomes, are you going to live or are you going to die? Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? And are you going to choose to to turn away from this or not? And this is what we see in passages in the Old Testament. For example, in Moses' parting words to the Israelites before he went up on Mount Nebo uh, and uh, where he died, he says to them, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. These are the options. Life and good on the one side, death and evil on the other side. And then in verse 19 he said, I call heaven and earth. Now, heaven and earth is taking... A, a, a merism here, the heavens and the earth, it's the totality of the universe, but it's more than that. He's talking about the inhabitants of heaven and earth. And under the Mosaic law, you always had to have two witnesses to confirm any any legal statement. We have the same kind of principle in, uh, in, in our jurisprudence. 
And who are the inhabitants of heaven? The angels. Who are the inhabitants of earth? Man. What, what this is a, basically a figure of speech where Moses is calling upon all of the sentient beings that God has created to witness the covenant that is being reestablished there through uh, Deuteronomy. I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses today. Now, you can't have a legal witness in a, an inanimate object like the sun or the moon or the planets or the stars. So it's, it's a figure of speech. He's talking about the inhabitants who are the witnesses to this, this covenant. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you, what? Life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Now, this is what Paul is going to, is getting at in terms of the implication of justification. Every day, you have the option to choose life or death. Not eternal condemnation in terms of death, but in terms of whether you're going to experience the fullness, the richness of the spiritual life that God has given you at the moment of salvation, or whether you're going to experience the opposite, which is sometimes referred to as carnal death, which is the separation from God because of sin, or temporal death, which relates to the ongoing, a lengthy time period in carnality, which we are separated uh, spiritually from the source of life because of sin. This is why, uh, this is what uh, Paul talks about when he comes to verse 23 of chapter 6 and says that the wages of sin is death. Remember, he quit talking about how to become justified and get eternal life at the end of chapter 4. Starting in chapter 6, he's talking to believers about how to experience the fullness of life. And he says, if you're going to keep living as a slave to unrighteousness in bondage, un, uh, like as if you're still in bondage to unrighteousness as you were when you were uh, when you were unsaved, then the wages of that sin is death. It is carnal death and temporal death. It is not eternal condemnation here. And he says, in contrast, as a reminder, the gift of God is eternal life. We've been given this gift. And you're squandering it if you're not living and exploiting that. Also in the Old Testament, you have passages like in Jeremiah 21.8. God tells Jeremiah, Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, before, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Every moment we go through life, we constantly decide, human viewpoint, divine viewpoint. Are we going to live on the basis of death or the basis of life? Proverbs 13, 14. Notice the parallel between Proverbs 13, 14 and 14, 27. The only difference is in 13, 14, it says the law of the wise. In 14, 27, the fear of the Lord. Everything else is the same. So what do you think is the relationship between the law of the wise and the fear of the Lord. Remember what Solomon wrote in chapter 1? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the way of the wise equals the person who, is, who fears the Lord in their life. So the law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one, way, to turn one away from the snares of death. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Following our sin nature always leads to the snares of death, not eternal death, but 
temporal death. So we need to understand this relationship between sin and death, and this is what Paul has done in Romans 5. Just to recap, he starts his thought in verse 12, therefore, drawing a conclusion from what he has said, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, notice it was through one man, it wasn't through one couple, it wasn't through one woman, Uh, I know that upsets certain people of a feminist bent, but this is how God created it and how the Word of God says it. I don't have anything to say about that. It was through one man. It was Adam who was created first, and his was the determinative uh, decision. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... Thus death spread to all men because all sin. But then Paul wants to make sure we really understand this, that his readers understand this, so he, he, he takes an anacoluthan. That means he runs down a rabbit trail. And his rabbit trail is significant because he wants to, expl- wants to make sure we understand how sin and death spread th- to every human being. And so verses 13 down to 18 or 17 basically explained that. He explains the relation between sin and death in 13 and 14, and then contrasts uh, Adam's sin and uh, with grace that comes through Christ. And in verse 17, notice he uses words like the free gift is not like the offense. Verse 15 um, uses the word offense again in the second line, grace and gift again in the third line, uh, verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Then he uses, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted uh, in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So there we're talking about that declaration of righteousness. He's drawing a comparison and contrast between Adam and his disobedience and Christ and his obedience. Then in verses 18 and 19, he comes back. This therefore takes us back. He's ended the parenthesis. He goes back to his main thought, reiterates it, and he is now going to connect for us uh, Adam's sin and condemnation with Christ's obedience and justification as a foundation for our uh, spiritual life. Now, we looked at at two different views on how sin is transmitted to the human race. Seminalism, which is the idea that the sin nature is transmitted genetically through physical procreation. And there are biblical verses that indicate that. And then there is another view, federalism which taught that Adam was the was simply the federal head. There's not a physical connection, only a, a federal connection. But the reality is both are true. It doesn't have to be an either or. Both are true in different ways. The sin nature and the physical corruption of sin in the body is passed on genetically. The guilt of Adam's sin is passed on uh, cor- corporately through the federal headship of Adam. So we've been asking these questions, what is sin? What's the penalty of sin? What's the sin nature's relationship to the corporeal human body and how is it passed on? Uh, a couple of words. We looked at a number of words for sin last time. Two or three that I want to emphasize is this first one, parabasis, which indicates transgression, breaking a specific commandment. 
See, Adam broke a specific mandate not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you don't have an codified law code from God until 1446 B.C. But people died anyway. This is Paul's argument here is that people died and were separated from God and were spiritually dead from Adam to Moses because of the corruption and guilt that's passed on from Adam, even though they didn't commit a transgression of the law, literally transgression of a commandment the same way that Adam did because they didn't have that same kind of commandment. They still still have a transgression, but they're guilty not because of what they do, but because of what what Adam did. And the related word paratoma, uh, meaning to transgress a specific statement. I'll skip these other words. Last time we ended talking about spiritual death and death in the Bible. So just remind you of the spiritual death is a real category. Now, I've had discussions with people who don't think it's a real category that really do believe that Genesis 2.17 is talking about physical death. Physical death is included within as an implication of that word in Genesis 2.17, but the reality, what happens that day, is that he's separated from God. Uh, in Ephesians 2.1 uh, as we'll look at in in a minute, says you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. So it's clearly talking about being physically alive and spiritually dead. So these passages talk about spiritual death, Romans 5, 12, 6, 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Then we have physical death. Physical death is a consequence of that spiritual death. When Adam sinned, the plug got pulled. And every descendant of Adam is born with that plug pulled. And there's, there's an appearance of life, but there's no life there. There's just corruption. Second death is the eternal, con- is the eternal punishment for those who do not solve the spiritual death problem in this life. Then we have operational death. This is when a person is out of fellowship and they, they're, they're just living on the basis of their sin nature. There's positional death, which is our identification with Christ and his death burial, or in his death specifically. There's temporal death, which is uh, another way of looking when we get out of fellowship and we're in carnality. And then there's sexual death. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 make it very clear, especially 2, 1, that he made you alive, Though you were dead, see, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So that's a, that's a non-physical use of the word dead. Now, just a recap as we run through Romans here. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as, and, and what he says literally is, is uh, for this reason, through one man sin entered the world. And the death, it's always the death. It's talking about a specific death as we'll, we, we, I don't know if I couldn't remember if I had talked about this last night or not, but it's talking about a specific death. It's talking about that initial death from Genesis 12:17 that spreads to all men. For uh, through one man sin entered the world and the death through sin and thus the death spread to all men because all sinned. But it spreads to all men through the sin of the original Sinner, Adam. It is not because they sinned. And this is what Paul explains in verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but it's not imputed. This is personal sin. It's not imputed when there's no law. Because there wasn't a statement that X is wrong, 
then you, you're not being punished for your personal sins. So why were they being punished? Why were they under condemnation? It's because there was a, there was Adam's sin. They were condemned because of Adam's sin. So Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those, which is everybody, who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Cain did not sin in the likeness of Adam, but he was born spiritually dead. And, uh, and then he makes a connection that Adam is a type or a picture of the one who was to come. The, um, let me back up here. The use of the article here, every reference to death in Romans 5 and 6, and I haven't finished Romans 7, but most of the ones in Romans 7 all have this article with them. And the point in the article is that this is called the article par excellence. It's used uh, when you have a, the worst of a class, um, a, I mean, a, a, a specific thing that represents a class of, of, uh, of things. It can refer to something that's the best in the class of things or the worst in the class of things. Uh, one grammar points out that if the lexical nuance of that particular class suggests it, it, it could be the worst. Uh, in essence, the article par excellence indicates the extreme of a particular class. When Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, it is, he's, he uses that kind of an article that indicates he is uh, at the extreme end of the category. It doesn't mean he's the best of sinners, but that he's the worst of sinners. Uh, if you say, if I make a pig of myself while eating ice cream and then get labeled the pig, it certainly would not be a valued appellation. So this idea of a par excellence doesn't mean it's excellent. It just means it's representing the uh, extreme, good or bad, of a class. So we've seen that there are three categories of sin, Adam's sin, individual personal sins, and then we have the sin nature. Uh, the point that Paul is making is that we're not condemned for personal sins. We're not uh, condemned for the sin nature. We're condemned for Adam's uh, sin, which is imputed to every, uh, every one of his descendants. They inherit a sin nature physically, but it is Adam's guilt that that is uh, imputed to that sin nature. So the point that Paul is making in these verses, that is in verses 13 and 14, is that there was no law from Adam to Moses. Nevertheless, everyone from Adam to Moses was born spiritually dead, not because of what they did, but because of what Adam did. Therefore, since they did not sin in the sense of a breach of law, their spiritual death, death must be the result of a greater sin, and that is the sin. I mean, excuse me, that is the death that goes back to the penalty for Adam of his sin. Now, that pretty much sets us up to pick up the thread. I want to skip through a couple of these other slides I had up here. Go back to uh, get up to Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even of those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. And the word there is parabasis. 
It's emphasizing not sin per se, but a type of sin, a transgression of, of the law. Now, this is important when we get into 5.17 to 19. Okay, that's all review in 45 minutes. Now we can understand the flow of thought here. In verse 18, or 17, he says, For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Notice it's the one man's offense. And it doesn't, the word for man is anthropos, I mean one human being, but it's one. And then subsequent pronouns refer to, or, or uh, use male gender. So it's clearly talking about Adam, not Eve. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, that's our connection and foundation of justification. Now he goes back to making this Conclusion again, same thing he was making in 5.12. I've got 5.18 on the screen, and I'm going to read 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. See, that's what he's talking about. That's the thought he picks up in verse 18. He expands on it a little bit, and he says, as through one man's offense, and then in the English text, you have the word judgment. If you notice that word judgment is in italics, that's because there's no word for judgment in the Greek. It says, as through one man's offense, then there's an implication, something goes to to all men, resulting in condemnation. The word that is translated condemnation is the word katakrima, which can be translated simply as punishment, a judgment that is applied. Now, when it's it's common that when we read in contexts like this, the word condemnation, the thing that jumps to your mind is eternal condemnation. But that's not necessary, and that really isn't what the word, the core meaning of the word is. The core meaning of the word is simply facing a a punishment. And that punishment can be temporal or eternal. And, what, and, and here we have a parallelism that is being set up. The one man's offense results in punishment. Even so, through one man's righteous act, and this is a, um, a, a, an important phrase here because it uses a different word for righteousness, as we'll see in a minute, that has to do with actions and doing something. Uh, so it is talking about the qualification of the Lord for, for, for uh, dying on the cross for our sins. He says, even though through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So what we're talking about here is this is where he's making his transition to talk about uh, the fullness of life in Romans 6. So if the life here, it shouldn't be translated really justification, but the action of righteousness in life, um, this isn't talking about phase one justification. 
then the life here and the and the uh, punishment here have to be talking about what is experienced in phase two or during life after salvation. So let me go to this chart, and then we'll go back. What we have in this verse is a contrast between Adam on the left, Christ on the right. On the left, we have one man's act of disobedience. On the right, we have one man's act of obedience. But it is a word that is used there for obedience that doesn't have to mean just one act. It is referring to not to what he does on the cross, but what he does in terms of his life prior to the cross. And remember, the life of Christ isn't related to his atonement. It's related to the uh, precedent that he is setting, the pattern he is demonstrating for our spiritual life. And so when we, we're, we're, Paul is making this transition here, and he talks about how uh, Adam's act of disobedience impacts all human beings, and it results in punishment, temporal punishment, because now they're living in a fallen world. They have uh, marriages that are rotten. They have kids that are, are rebellious and disobedient, in, in the case of Adam, murderers. Uh, they, they're experiencing all manner of rot in life simply because of the impact of, of sin and death. Because everybody's spiritually dead, they're experiencing the consequences of this kind of death. They're living, we're living in a dead world, and we're living in a world that is characterized by dead people and dead institutions and dead things who have denied the source of real life. And this is contrasted to the one man's act of obedience, or one man's obedience, that is, that is the basis for his free gift. And the fact that if you notice in the text, it says, it's, on, it's contrasted, the one man's offense, verse 17, and repeated in 18, the one man's offense, Adam's offense, doesn't imply any volition there. But the phrase, the free gift, see, when Adam broke the, God's commandment, it automatically had consequences on all human beings. But when Jesus is obedient, it doesn't... See, it's not a one-to-one correspondence in this analogy. Jesus' obedience doesn't automatically apply to everybody. The fact that Paul shifts to using the term free gift shows that there's a volitional act that must come to play. There must be a reception of that free gift, an acceptance of that, or faith, uh, faith in Christ. Therefore, as one man's uh, offense came to all men or is, is applied to all men, resulting in punishment, even so through one man's righteous act, or we could even translate it through one man's righteousness, the free gift or that goes to all men. It picks up the idea of free gift from the previous passage, previous verse. It's implied uh, to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Now, the word here that is translated justification, I've got it transliterated there at the bottom, is the word dikai. Osin, dikai osin, and in Greek, it is that 
suffix, that uh, omega, and then the S-I-N, that indicates an action. It indicates an action. So it's not uh, dikaiosune, which is the noun for related to justification and righteousness, which is the declaration of, of righteousness, but this is an action that comes as a result of a person being declared righteous. So we're moving from the state of forensic justification to experiential, to the foundation for experiential uh, righteousness. So it is translated in the in the uh, New King James that it, that that Christ, the one man's righteous acts results in justification, or we could say, even translate, results in righteousness in life. So that it's the focus is now shifting to the production of experiential uh, righteousness. Now we go back and we look at verse 19. 19 gives us an explanation for us. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners they are declared to they they are sinners they are be, become corrupt and they are fallen and have and they're born separated from god and then on the uh, analogy with christ so also by one man's obedience uh, many will be made righteous and so that's talking about a future event and their uh, declaration of righteousness and justification there. He goes back and forth because he's making this transition. So he talks about justification righteousness, and then he'll talk about experiential righteousness, then justification righteousness, then experiential righteousness, because that's what he's he's moving toward in his in his discussion, that there is an intrinsic relationship between uh, positional righteousness, and experiential righteousness. Not the kind of intrinsic relationship that you get out of Reformed theology which says that if you are declared righteous, you will automatically produce uh, experiential righteousness. That's one of the problems in lordship salvation, that then you can judge whether or not a person is truly saved by whether or not they're performing works that are in keeping with, with justification. What, what I'm, what I'm uh, trying to say here is that there's an intrinsic connection in that because you are now a new creature in Christ with positional righteousness, you're saved for a reason, and that is to produce experiential righteousness. You can't experience, you can't have experiential righteousness unless you are first positionally righteous. And because you are declared positionally righteous, there is, there is an expectation and a responsibility to move beyond phase one justification to phase two uh, sanctification, being saved from the uh, presence. I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, saved from the uh, power of sin, so that you can experience and have experiential righteousness in your life. So this. Uh, is a transformation also in the concept of life that sees this as not just uh, denoting life without end in heaven, 
but a newness or quality of life, which is what uh, Paul begins to talk about when we get down to uh, Romans chapter uh, 6, verse, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That's uh, baptism by means of the Spirit, which we studied Tuesday night. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? In newness of life. This is the shift. This newness of life is real life as opposed to uh, living uh, with a pseudo-life that is simply a physical life without a spiritual dimension or quality, uh, quality to it. So then Paul begins to make his shift in verse 20. He says, Moreover, the law entered... And this is to answer the question, well, why then did the law come in? If everybody was already a sinner and condemned and spiritually dead, what's the role of the law? Paul then is saying that the law entered, and this isn't, some people try to make this a a negative word, it's just saying the law law entered into history that the offense, that is peritoma again, not hamartia, but peritoma, that is the transgression of the law, uh, that the offense might abound. Now you have 613 commandments to break. And so there's a lot more ways that, overt ways to sin. So it's, what God is doing by giving the law is exposing how, how, uh, how sin permeates every aspect of life. And so, uh, now sin abounds because there's more ways to sin. So he makes the statement, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Because there were more ways that people could sin, God is exposing the uh, all of the dimensions of sin, and so at the same time, though God is ex- is expanding the, the His grace toward man. Now you can already hear the question coming. Well, if we can sin and grace abounds, let's go sin some more. He's going to head that one off in verse 1 of chapter 6. But he goes on to say in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, that is, had dominion or power or authority uh, and in the status of spiritual death, even so, grace might reign. There's the potential there, that subjunctive of might reign. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Now, this is not talking about getting justified. He's covered that in 3 and 4. We're, we're, we're moving away. We have moved away from justification righteousness to sanctification righteousness. And so he's talking now about grace can reign through righteousness in the life of the believer to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not eternal life in the sense of ongoing life without end, but it's the same idea that we have coming up at the end of the chapter, that the wages of sin, that is, if you're a believer and you live in carnality, then what you're going to reap is carnal death. It's not going to have value. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5 ends... He begin with the same concept that chapter 6 will end with because that's what he's driving toward is challenging us to have lives 
that reflect eternal life, not just the fact that we're going to spend eternity in heaven, but that we have a quality of life in this life that is beyond anything that anyone could imagine because this is what Jesus has promised us, his abundant life. So with that, we'll wrap up chapter 5. I'll probably come back when I get back from Israel in a couple of weeks, hit this a little again as we transition into chapter 6, and then start into the section proper on on the uh, spiritual life. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to recognize that we are saved for a purpose. We're given a life without end that we can have a life of unbelievable quality, that we can learn to live on the basis of all the blessings that you have given us, all of the riches that we have in Christ, that we may have a a fullness of life, an abundance of life that is beyond anything that could possibly be imagined, no matter what our circumstances might be. And that this is because in our soul there is, uh, as Jesus says in John 4, there are wells that spring up to living, living water uh, in reference to the many blessings of God the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.